0: Hi there, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. I'm Wenzel Jones. I'm Steve Pride.
1: I'm Rick Watts. And I'm Scooter Jay Stevens.
0: And now IMRU presents Pride Out Loud, Episode 3. The Plague Gears.
2: We are gathered together tonight for one purpose to fight back against AIDS. The Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome.
3: This
4: is not a gay disease. It is not a gay disease.
2: I know that there
5: are some horror stories about people with AIDS who have been disenfranchised of their basic rights. Their, Their roommates have kicked them out. They've been served on paper plates. Their families have disowned them.
4: Support the community. Help us deal with the panic because people are panicking.
1: If we withdraw from one another and excoriate one another because of our guilt and our fear, we'll only add joy to the heart of every right-wing, Bible-thumping homophobe in America.
4: Tonight, we are marching as our others across America, and we
2: shouldn't have to be.
4: When I asked my doctor what my uh, mortality would be, <laughs> He didn't have an answer. Tonight, we are pleading for our lives and the future lives of Americans, and we should not have to be.
5: It's very frightening to think, more often than not, I've read that the average lifespan is two years after diagnosis. And I hate to think, I'll lose my brother at 24.
6: Good evening. This is the IMRU News Report for this Sunday, May 29, 1983. Topping our news tonight, three Los Angeles City Council members joined a crowd of nearly 5,000 at the Federal Building in Westwood last Thursday to demand more government funding for research into the AIDS epidemic. City Council President Joel Wax spoke out against the myth that AIDS is a concern only to gay men. You don't have
7: to be Jewish to care about someone dying from Tay-Sachs disease. And you don't have to be black to care about someone dying from sickle cell anemia. And you don't have to be gay to care about someone dying from AIDS. All it takes is a little human decency.
4: My name's Bill Bader, and I was diagnosed with AIDS last December. The worst part of having this disease for myself, and I think this is true for most other AIDS patients, is not the physical hassles, they're bad, but the worst part is the sense of isolation and the incredible loneliness and the times of indescribable hopelessness in combating this disease. But as I look out tonight and and talking to people before, all I felt was a sense of faith and hope and a lot of love coming from all you people. And right now I don't feel any sense of isolation or loneliness and I don't feel any sense of hopelessness. And it's this kind of concern, the kind that's brought you people here tonight that makes me able to stand here and say, I know I'm going to win over this disease.
1: Initial detection in 1981, HIV has gone on to infect more than 75 million people worldwide, killing some 35 million of those. Dr. Michael Gottlieb first documented AIDS as a disease back then. Dr. Gottlieb, what is HIV? What
8: is AIDS? And how does HIV work? HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. It causes AIDS slowly. It infects a person and then works its damage over years on an average of 10 or so years, kind of gnawing away at the immune system to a point where the immune system becomes so low that the patient is developing these opportunistic diseases with bacteria and fungi and protozoa. And when a person develops these opportunistic diseases, they're considered to have AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Now, A couple of years later, the CDC refined that definition to say that anybody whose T-cell count or CD4 count fell below a number of 200, that they were considered to have AIDS as well. And the reason for that is that when the count falls below 200, at least in the old days before treatment, uh, patients were clearly very susceptible to developing one of the opportunistic diseases. And so CDC wanted to make their definition more sensitive so as to get an accurate count of how many people, in fact, had the disease. And this, of course, is before the advent of the HIV antibody test, which tells you, really, who is HIV positive and who's HIV negative. Back then, why
1: would someone have not taken the test?
8: In those days, having a positive test was a death sentence because there were no available treatments. So I can understand a person not wanting to take the test and not wanting to know if there's no available therapy. What's the point of taking the test if there's no treatment? How did you first come to be acquainted with what has since come to be known as AIDS? It was 1981. I was a junior professor at UCLA. In the midst of a teaching exercise, I asked one of my postdoctoral fellows, to find a patient who had a disease with immunologic features. And he went to the wards and came back to tell me about our first patient with AIDS. Of course, it didn't have a name at that time. He was a 31-year-old man with fevers and pneumocystis pneumonia, one of the opportunistic infections that we've since associated with the immune deficiency caused by HIV. So this patient was very interesting and we wondered whether he would be just one of a kind that we would never see another patient like him, when in fact uh, in the next few weeks we saw three more patients who were virtual carbon copies of the first patient. And it seemed at that time that Something very unusual was going on, worthy of reporting to the health authorities. This was not a subtle illness. This was rather severe, dramatic, and life-threatening from the get-go. And, of course, I was concerned and and worried for their well-being. I began to think that this was going to be something very large, but I had no idea that it would be what it's become today worldwide. This was something that wasn't in any textbook. So we looked in the lab right away and with colleagues, looked at the immune system under the microscope and found that this patient was deficient in these T cells called helper T cells or CD4 cells. And that seemed to be the basis of the immune deficiency. Something, some unknown event or exposure or toxin or even a virus, was attacking this particular arm of the immune system. And there was a lot of speculation at first, with a lot of wild theories as to what was causing this because our first four patients were all gay men. There was the Popper theory, there was immune system overload, there was African swine fever, there was all sorts of wild stuff, but from the get-go we thought it was a viral disease because There was precedent for other viruses causing at least a transient or temporary immune system depression, and we thought that, in fact, the immune system damage in some of these patients might heal on its own, comparable to what we saw with some other viral diseases, but that wasn't to be the case with HIV. Are there still people out there who think that HIV doesn't cause AIDS? Yeah, there are a few people out there like that. I think there are fewer people like that than there used to be because some of the people who, in fact, claim that, in fact, were HIV positive and wound up dying of AIDS and their children dying of AIDS. So it's kind of difficult to, uh, in those circumstances, to say that their HIV was not the cause of their ultimate immune deficiency and death. And let me just add that the treatments that we've developed that are aimed directly at HIV and at no other virus or dietary issue or any other claim, those treatments have turned around the HIV epidemic here in the United States such that people stopped dying as often as they did in the mid-1990s as a result of the institution and availability of life-saving medication directed against HIV specifically. What happened to those first four patients? Well, all those patients died within uh, 9 to 12 months of coming to attention. Again, this was a dramatic illness. They were at the advanced stage of immune system burnout due to HIV. They had essentially no immune system left and fell prey to these opportunistic viruses and bacteria that caused their deaths very quickly.
1: In those early days of the epidemic when the government wasn't paying attention, the gay community wasn't paying too much attention, but you had all these patients that were coming into you, and there wasn't a lot that you could offer them. How
8: did that feel? Oh, that was awful. That was just awful. We had these AIDS units in various hospitals in Sherman Oaks and at Midway Hospital, and at any time there'd be 20 or 30 patients, on a ward, all with AIDS, and it was like a MASH unit. He would patch them up and send them out, and they'd be back weeks or months later with some other horrible infection. And I remember patients very well by name and what they looked like and just how much I wanted to help them, and uh was powerless to do that. In the period of time that was covered in the Dallas Buyers Club movie, when we had so little to offer patients, I still remember patients who we lost uh, because we just didn't have medications and just how much they wanted to survive and how much we wanted to help them. And yet we were powerless to do anything but provide comfort care and let them know we were trying. I think it helped them to know we were trying, that we were still doctoring and that we were still listening to them and hearing about their lives and what made them happy in and, and the times they were out of hospital. But it was a very awful experience for anybody in the medical profession, specifically myself. It was a uh, painful experience.
1: What was the most difficult part of sounding the alarm to alert everyone that something was going on that they needed to pay attention to?
8: Well, the most difficult part was trying to figure out how to do it. I was uh, an immunologist by training and not an infectious disease doctor. And so my first instinct was to call the editor of a medical journal rather than the CDC. Fortunately, the uh, editor of the medical journal suggested that I call CDC. And once I called CDC, there really was no problem in sounding the alarm. CDC recognized that it might be important and invited us to submit our cases for publication. They were published. They were widely read uh, across the United States. People in other cities who were seeing patients said, aha, here is what we've been seeing. It's the same thing as these people are reporting in the, the journal. That was no difficulty. I think there was a resistance certainly in the gay community, to accepting the fact that there was something new, that there was something possibly affecting that community more than other communities. People, for good reason, wanted to go on with their lives. They didn't necessarily want to believe that there was some new threat.
1: Where did HIV come from? Is it new or was it newly recognized?
8: Well, it was newly recognized in 1981, but pretty clearly there were some cases, a smattering of cases happening in other cities prior to our description of the disease in 1981. From looking at frozen specimens of blood from blood donors in the United States, it's pretty clear that HIV was certainly here as early as 1977. And uh, further studies of frozen specimens revealed an HIV-positive specimen from Zaire from 1958. And so pretty clearly it's a virus that was percolating out there under the radar for a long time. And even further studies uh, date its crossover from the chimp species into humans as early as uh, 1915. And the crossover from primates to humans is pretty easy to explain because protein sources in sub-Saharan Africa are scarce. People do eat what they can kill in the bush, and they can kill chimps and other primate species. And one can imagine a hunter uh, butchering an animal, cutting themselves. In the course of doing that, the mixing of the blood occurs, and the virus jumps from the chimpanzee species over to the human species. And This event is actually thought to have happened at least five times in history in sub-Saharan Africa.
1: If someone contracts HIV, do they always develop AIDS if left untreated?
8: Most people who contract HIV do go on to develop AIDS. However, there's a small percentage of people who are what we call long-term non-progressors, where their own immune system seems to contain HIV and work against it, and they're protected from developing the immune system burnout that leads to the opportunistic infections. and Those patients are actually very interesting, have been widely studied in terms of what it takes to contain HIV, and that's very relevant to HIV vaccine development, to know how certain patients are able to get a handle and squelch the virus.
1: What happens if HIV is inadequately
8: treated? Well, unfortunately, we had a lot of experience with that in the late 80s and early 90s when we had only one or two drugs. And the problem there is that HIV has a marked tendency to develop resistance to antiviral drugs. So inadequate treatment means using only one drug or two drugs, where it really takes three drugs to contain the virus. And that's what we discovered in 1995 with what's called highly active antiretroviral therapy or the cocktail. But people can still mess up with the cocktail and take the drug intermittently or miss doses of a drug. And that gives the virus an opening to develop resistance. And the drugs fail and can never be used again. We
1: have heard a lot recently about
8: PrEP. Is it a good idea or not? I think it's unnecessarily controversial. It is just one more thing that a person who's HIV negative can do in addition to safer sex and condoms to protect themselves against HIV. The science is sound. The medication Truvada is available with prescription. It has to be used properly, correctly, and and those of us who prescribe it take special pains to educate our patients who are HIV negative how to use Truvada in addition to other measures to protect themselves against contracting HIV. There are people who will not use it according to the instructions, and they are taking some risk. But if they're already not using condoms, and we know that gay men are using condoms perhaps 50% of the time on average, it seems to me that it is an important harm reduction strategy to make Truvada available even to patients who aren't practicing safer sex, as at least an effort to prevent their contracting HIV. Along the lines of needle exchanges for IV drug addicts? Exactly, something that reduces the risk of contracting a disease. We already know that there's a lot of unsafe sex going on, and this is one more measure to prevent HIV transmission. But the science of PrEP is good, And uh, my experience so far is that uh, patients that I've prescribed it for are using it very responsibly and have not changed the nature of their sexual life.
1: The development of resistance in the virus, could that be likened to evolution?
8: Oh, absolutely. That's what it is. It's survival of the fittest. It's the virus uh, evolving to develop mutations that allow it to escape the drugs. It's not anything by design. It's kind of random. It's selection pressure, kind of like finches in certain environments. If the food isn't there for them, for one type of finch, another type of finch exploits that and becomes the dominant species. And the same is true for HIV in terms of its variants.
1: Dr. Michael Gottlieb, it's been a real honor speaking with you. Thank you for all you continue to do. Thank you, Rick.
6: The AIDS Awareness Stamp, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On World AIDS Day, December 1, 1993, the U.S. Postal Service joined the American Association for World Health, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Point of Light Foundation in raising awareness about AIDS. It issued a 29-cent AIDS awareness stamp. Historically, World AIDS Day is an international observance designed to provide education and awareness on issues surrounding HIV-AIDS. The stamp, designed by artist Tom Mann of Warrenton, Virginia, features a red ribbon, symbolizing compassion and awareness. The Postal Service issued 25 million booklets of 10 stamps nationwide, with AIDS hotline and referral numbers listed on the booklets. Sheets of 50 stamps were also on sale. Other public health-related stamps include ones related to public health, public hospitals, polio, and cancer. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Sarah Prescott.
7: I am Cleve Jones, and you are listening to IMRU. I-
0: and although it seems like common sense today the concept of safe sex was completely radical at the time
9: the light bulb went off in my head and i realized that there was a lot of ways to have pleasure that wouldn't involve any kind of risk for infections. We started having this heated discussion. I mean, Michael said, well, oh, isn't that great? You can whip and beat people without spreading AIDS. But some of them said, wait a second. There are ways to have sex that interrupt disease transmission. I remember thinking, interrupt disease transmission. I mean, it was visual, it was captivating, and it just completely propelled me.
5: Richard Berkowitz, a gay SM sex worker, turned AIDS activist in the 1980s, is the author of *Staying Alive, the Invention of Safe Sex, and his life is the subject of the award-winning documentary, Sex Positive. The concept of safe sex is now a given, but was not obvious or something the queer community was ready for in 1982.
9: We came up with our safe sex guidelines at a time of incredible panic and paranoia and just all-out hysteria. No one knew what the cause of AIDS was. The first patients that were getting sick were incredibly disfigured and incredibly grisly looking. And when the media started to wake up to AIDS and begin their first stories to report the epidemic, they actually showed up at an AIDS support group that I was a member of in 1982, and they walked out disappointed because there was no one disfigured enough for what they were looking for. So they actually started painting the first pictures of AIDS by hunting down the most disfigured patients. So when when you juxtapose these very disfigured patients that were showing up on TV reports with the fact that no one knew the cause of AIDS, that a new epidemic was emerging, that there was a new case being reported every day, and just panic and 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 paranoia just broke out everywhere. So juxtaposed against that kind of climate, Michael Callan, the late AIDS activist and good friend of mine and my writing partner in the early days of AIDS, we both had the same doctor, Dr. Joseph Sonabend, who we were realizing had spent many years as a lab scientist. And so he had opened up a practice in Greenwich Village to treat sexually transmitted diseases in the late 1970s. And with his background as a lab scientist and a microbiologist and virologist, he had an understanding about what was going on with AIDS that was probably deeper than most doctors would be able to understand. So he kind of realized from the practice he had, which was gay men coming to get treated for STDs on a regular basis, that it was his patients who had a history of anal STDs who were showing immunological abnormalities, but that his patients who had a history of only oral or penile sexually transmitted diseases were not showing immunological abnormalities. He came to realize that the most important thing we could do to curb the spread of AIDS was to protect bottoms, and that meant using a condom. So in conversations with me and Michael, he was saying, I know there's all this hysteria and panic going on. He said, but I've had 25 years as a lab scientist, and based on what I'm seeing in my practice with patients whose history I know, I don't think there's any reason for panic. I think that basically we need to tell gay men who are sexually, anally receptive to use a con for anal sex, and we can definitely curb the spread of this disease. So Michael and I began writing, actually I began writing, um, First, we tried to write an article explaining the scientific theories, that we didn't necessarily believe that AIDS was a one-shot deal, that there were a lot of things that could affect the uh, strength of the immune system, and there were a lot of factors in an urban gay male lifestyle, such as drug use and multiple exposures to certain sexually transmitted virus and infections that might well be playing a role in AIDS or at least affect how well you coped once you were infected with HIV. So we wrote the first article, which was called We Know Who We Are, And it was very controversial because it was at the peak of the gay sexual revolution. So the idea that two people that hardly anyone knew of would come out writing an article saying, you know, maybe our lifestyle is fueling or driving what's going on was a really painful pill for sexually active gay men to swallow and we had it published in The New York Native, and the publisher tacked on a subtitle, Two Gay Men Declare War on Promiscuity, which made the article extremely controversial and kind of made Callan and I pariahs in the gay community. By the time we, we finished writing the article explaining what we thought was going on, that AIDS was more complicated than a single exposure to a possible new virus, we were already coming up with ways to figure out how to have sex safely, But because we were so hated from the first article, when we finished our booklet, How to Have Sex in an Epidemic One Approach, the community hated us so much they didn't really want to deal with us, even though we were offering them a way for gay men to have safe sex and and in some ways to continue the lifestyle that was killing us by intervening with a technological intervention, i.e. a condom. And it was very, very difficult getting our first uh, guidelines out there. In fact, it took two years after we published How to Have Sex and Epidemic for the first safe sex campaign in New York City to be underway. And that was because of, you know, personality conflicts and political differences. And I think what we've lost by not knowing the early history of how safe sex began is that there really has been no spokesperson representing sexually active gay men. There are a lot of gay men who thought that AIDS would convince sexually active gay men to settle down into more monogamous relationships. And there's always been a sense of being willing to sacrifice the quote unquote sluts by older gay men who wanted gay men to stop living that lifestyle that was not just killing them but making the community in general look bad. So I think we've really been missing the voice of people who defend promiscuity People who see it as um, a choice that gay men can and do make and that there are ways to be sexually active and protect yourself and your partner. And um, I think that's what got written out of history when Callan and I and Sonneman got written out of history. You know, To have very sexually active gay men speaking to very sexually active gay men, rather than having gay men who wish gay men would settle down to monogamy, telling sexually active gay men what to do.
5: Before the plague, who was Richard Berkowitz?
9: I had always wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean I spent my four years at Rutgers, at this, I spent more time at the school newspaper office writing about films with the hope of going to NYU graduate film school and then my dream came true and I got into film school but I spent so much money making my films that I needed a one year financial leave of absence to make some money to go back to school and it was in that time that I stuck my toe in the water at sex work to see if it was possible for me to make enough money to get back to grad school by doing sex work in New York City. Right from the get-go, the first few guys that met me were aware that I was kind of a left-wing activist, that I was really angry about... I was politically angry about what was going on in the country. I was young and impatient. I wanted the country to accept gay rights overnight. And as Ronald Reagan moved closer and closer to inhabiting the White House, my anger got deeper. And the first few guys that hired me tapped into that anger by wanting me to play the role of an S&M top. And they bought me accoutrements and they taught me what to do. And I took to it like a fish to water. It became an outlet, a creative outlet, actually, for the anger that I had in, as an activist that was turning into bitterness and cynicism because of the direction the country was moving in moving towards the right with Reagan. So I was taught how to do what I did. And I guess I had the raw skills to be good at it because I loved what I did. I was responsible in the way I did it. It was fascinating to me. I certainly made enough money to go back to grad school, but the time to return came and went without even realizing it because I became so wrapped up in being a successful S&M top for hire. Your
5: background was used to discredit your
9: message. I think like blacks and Jews, whenever a group that's trying to be admitted into the mainstream of a society, I think there's always this acute concern about how we're going to be seen. And I think that was part of the problem that happened when AIDS came along, was that people were worried that it was going to be used to deny us our rights. It would be used to push us back further into the closet, which, of course, it did for many years. And I think people were really tortured by how to talk about AIDS in the mainstream media, while worrying at the same time about how straight people would react to gay men, that this was bad for our image. But having been a member of the First AIDS of Pork in New York City and watching gay men in their 20s and 30s, you know, wasting away and dying, and believing from the beginning that there was a way to prevent this, part of the problem that Callan and I had was we were seeing the epidemic from the point of view of people who were dying, a really horrible death. And we didn't care about how it looked to the straight world. We first and foremost wanted to save lives. And I think a lot of people in the community were really upset by how graphic we were and how we were more concerned with saving lives than with protecting an image. And I think a lot of the people who stepped forward in the early days of AIDS as gay community leaders we more concerned about the image because maybe they hadn't seen firsthand what Cal and I were seeing in the first aid support group. So there were a lot of conflicts and there was a lot of political divisions and it was very difficult to find ways to talk about AIDS in our country and especially to talk about safe sex because it was very anal-centric and that makes even a lot of gay men uncomfortable. But that's really, I think, the major risk and what we have to grapple with if we want to protect Sexually active young people from getting infected.
5: This has been a conversation with Richard Berkowitz, whose contribution to the invention of safe sex has never been aptly credited. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
0: Cleve Jones created the AIDS Memorial quilt in 1985 to honor the people lost to the disease.
5: From the highs of the 1970s gay revolution to the lows of the mid-1980s when many of his friends were dying of a mysterious disease. From being near death himself to being granted a reprieve with the invention of the triple cocktail, Cleve Jones has experienced the emotional roller coaster of life as a political activist and HIV-positive gay man.
7: Hi, this is Cleve Jones.
5: Leave your friend and mentor, Harvey Milk, was assassinated right after Thanksgiving in 1978. A dark time. But just a couple years later, things went from bad to worse. Let's talk about the 1980s. Let's talk about AIDS.
7: Well, I first heard about it 30 years ago. I was working in the State Assembly as a consultant to the Democratic Caucus. I was assigned to the Health Committee. I didn't know anything about it. So I subscribed to every public health journal that I could find. And one of them was the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MMWR published by the Centers for Disease Control. And uh, 30 years ago, on uh, I think it was June 5th, if I'm not mistaken, 1981, were the first, I think, three paragraphs describing clusters of gay men who were suffering and dying from Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia. And I clipped that and put it on my bulletin board. I I remember thinking when I read it that this was probably really bad news. And then, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think within a few weeks, at the most within a couple of months, I got a call from Dr. Marcus Conant, who was a dermatologist at the University of California, San Francisco. And he invited me to come up to the hospital there to see this young man named Simon Guzman, who was in an isolation ward and uh, died the next day. And that was the uh, the first one I saw. And by 1985, it seemed that everyone I knew was dead or dying. I try to convey this to young people. I go to campuses all the time and I I try to explain this to them and they don't get it. It's so frustrating. I mean, I think about like when in the 60s when I was little and I would see television programs or hear my parents speak about things that had happened 30 years before. Well, that was the Depression and then World War II. And for a kid growing up in the 60s, hearing about what happened in the 30s, well, it might as well have been the Jurassic period, you know, or the Middle Ages. It was just ancient history. I lived on Castro Street for 10 years before the epidemic, and then I lived there for the first 10 years of the epidemic. And I myself lived with the knowledge that I had the virus for 10 full years before effective treatment started. Um Oh, man, it was, it was just so hard, and I felt, um, I think we were all just so desperate to, to try to find any way we could to break through the hatefulness and the lies and the hysteria, and I came up with the, the quilt, and um, I think it worked, you know, I think it really did work, I think it really helped a lot, I know it helped, I know it helped a lot of people, not just in our country, but all over the world, it, it put a face where there had only been statistics. Um, it revealed the families we had created. And uh, I think it was really useful. I find it difficult to talk about. I, I, I just recently had a conversation with the woman who sewed the quilt together. She was the one who did all the work. I got all the credit. <laughs> but uh, Cindy McMullen, known as Gert, to her friends, to this day is still sewing the quilt together. and repairing it and keeping it going. And we were talking, and she said, um, you know, we cried every day for 10 years. And when she said that, I thought it was hyperbole at first, but then I I realized, no, uh, we cried every single day for 10 years, and hospitals were filled to overflowing. It's just impossible for the new generation to understand.
5: In another interview... You mentioned being so surrounded by death that you even saw someone die on the street.
7: Yeah, right in front of the cafe floor, Market and Noe. He looked like an old man, and he collapsed. As we got closer, we realized he was someone in his 20s. But I could tell you a story about every building on those first three blocks of Castro Street. I could This is where Simon died. This is where Billy died. This is where Henry committed suicide. This is where they found Luis, you know, a month after he died because no one was left to check on him. This is where George starved to death because he was too weak to shop and nobody brought him food. I mean, I could just... uh... It was a very concentrated experience. And the night that I had the idea for the quilt was in uh, mid-November of 1985, and the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle that day... I was out putting up flyers reminding people of the annual candlelight tribute to Harvey Milk and George Moscone on November 27th. And there was a headline in the paper. We had stopped at the corner of Castro and Market to get a slice of pizza, and we're picking up the newspaper, and the headline said, "A 1,000 San Franciscans dead from AIDS. Well, if you stand at Castro and Market and look three blocks east, three blocks west, three blocks north, and three blocks south, those first 1,000 who died all lived in that square, And there was no evidence. Beautifully restored Victorians, cafes, clubs, restaurants. You smell coffee and food. You hear music and laughter. But no evidence. I remember just getting kind of enraged and saying to my buddy, you know, I wish if you, if you gave me a bulldozer right now, I'd knock down these buildings. And maybe if people walked by here and saw a meadow with a thousand corpses rotting in the sun, they'd get what was happening. And if they were humans, they'd respond. They'd be compelled to. But it was like this invisible thing and no response, and Reagan, you know, not even saying the word aloud. I think the estimate is that in my little neighborhood, which is really six blocks, we were losing about between 1,500 and 2,000 a year. And most abandoned, of course, by their families, their biological families. Not always, but mostly. I think we're all grateful that we're not reminded of every day by watching people we love die, but we ought to be thinking about it every day because there are young people being infected every day. Anyone who's infected needs to get treatment immediately before their immune system collapses and before they transmit it to other people.
5: This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, friend, Cleve Jones. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Is it over yet?
3: Has
5: the crisis gone away? Is it
8: finished now? Can we all return to play? Is it cured for now? Are people still passing away? Can I relax
3: a bit?
7: Or must we further the cause?
3: Is it over and done? When will AIDS finally leave us alone?
10: Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break.
2: Larry Kramer, pioneer AIDS activist, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Larry Kramer was born in Connecticut in 1935. He earned his degree from Yale and became a writer in the entertainment industry. Through his later writings, he sounded the alarm about the AIDS epidemic. He bluntly warned gays against a life of excess and wrote scathing criticism of the government's inaction to the crisis. In 1982, Kramer helped form a group called the Gay Men's Health Crisis to help combat the AIDS epidemic. He also helped form the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, known as ACT UP, Through its demonstrations, ACT UP garnered widespread media coverage, influencing drug companies to ramp up the development of new AIDS treatments. Kramer discovered he himself was HIV positive in 1988. He responded by writing a play based loosely on his life journey. That journey reveals a man with a dogged determination to fight AIDS with political change. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
3: IMRU
0: Sean Strube is a long-term AIDS survivor and the director of the Ciro Project, a national network of people with HIV combating stigma and injustice. He was a longtime member of ACT UP New York, ACT UP being the AIDS coalition to unleash power.
11: ACT UP started in March of 1987, and I became involved later that summer initially to do a fundraising appeal for them as a client, and then I got wrapped up in the group and became a volunteer and co-chaired the fundraising committee and produced all sorts of events and direct mail and so on. When ACT UP started, it was more focused externally trying to exert pressure on the institutions of power in government at the Food and Drug Administration, at the National Institutes of Health, the pharmaceutical industry, to get them to respond more responsibly. Both were very important, and as treatments started to trickle through the pipeline, ACT UP played an enormously important role in expediting their approval. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for ACT UP, and I think my involvement with ACT UP was also very important for me psychologically. It gave us a place to direct and to channel the rage and the anger that so many of us felt at that time when we were going to more funerals and memorial services than birthday parties.
0: In the early 1990s, he founded Pause Magazine and Pause en Español for people impacted by HIV-AIDS.
11: The impetus for starting the magazine, I was seeing this dichotomy between my life which was surrounded with other people with AIDS, who, despite that very serious health burden and despite the loss that we were dealing with constantly and suffering, uh, we were still leading our lives. We were falling in love and breaking up. We were pursuing our careers. We were paying our rent. We were starting businesses. We were raising children. We were going to school. Yet in the media, almost inevitably, certainly in the national media, the mainstream media, that whenever... AIDS was referenced, it was bracketed with words like inevitably fatal, dread disease, terminal illness, no survivors, no cure. And the possibility of survival had been taken away from people with AIDS at that time. And I knew that when I get a feeling in the pit of my stomach or cold feet or the hair in the back of my neck rises, that that is some physiological reaction to an intellectual stimulus, fear, anger, whatever it is. And I thought the immune system surely must work to some extent in the same way. And so by showing the examples of what I was seeing in my life of other people with AIDS and talking about how they were coping with this burden amidst still living a life, that that would be helpful to many others, and and it was.
7: Now, in the book, Mm -hmm. you actually describe it as the People magazine of the HIV
11: Well, that was one of my original thoughts because there were some treatment newsletters. In fact, we had started, at my company, we had started a treatment newsletter called InfoPack. But not everybody's in the science club. And uh, I was always trying to get the technical information explained in simpler terms for myself so I could understand it. And so I started thinking about something somewhat more mass and that was attractive. And we were criticized by the time, you know, because it was on, you know, nice paper and it was lush photography and, you know, very slick was the word that was used that was kind of disparaging. As though somehow people with HIV didn't deserve something of comparable quality to people interested in reading Vanity Fair. David France
0: is an award-winning American investigative reporter, nonfiction author, and Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker for How to Survive a Plague.
10: After 1996 when the drugs made for a return to health for many people. They emptied the hospitals. They freed newspapers from the burden of those mountains of obituaries, especially in the gay papers that were being published. And one by one, we all charted a course forward away from those years. And many of us did it by bearing the injury from then, the traumas, the grief that because the bombs were dropping so quickly, we didn't have time to exercise at the time, and try to find the ordinary life that we were working so hard to have rights to live. And I think that pushed us away from our memories, and I think it pushed us away from that that piece of history that took years to circle back around to. It's been 15 years now, 16 years since, since then, and I think there's something about that interval that allows us to look back and see the darkness but also to see the brilliance of what happened, you know, as kind of soldiers in the trench together, and to see what the lessons of AIDS are and how we learned them. That's what brought me back to ACT UP and those demonstrators and how they did what they did. The tools they used, which were humor and ridicule, as well as fierce intellects and a really profound will to live. And that really drove us. 96 and forward. So, I think when you look back, you realize now, with the benefit of this time past, that a lot of good came out of those years. And I think we're ready to look at that and understand that. The current generation is hungry for heroes and hungry for evidence that change can happen and that ordinary people can bring it on. And that's what I've discovered, you know, in the first phase of rolling a film out like this, is to go from festival to festival, and it was like a hand-to-hand retail of this story, I met my audiences, and I saw the readiness in the eyes of the people 20 years old, 25 years old, the surprise about this story that there was this massive grassroots clever movement that produced so much about which we know nothing. And what people see when, when they look at those old actions and the, the activists from those days is how young they were. At least two of the characters in the film, main characters, were teenagers. We watched them taking on Nobel Prize winners with the confidence of the knowledge that they had established and built up among themselves about science and really engaging experts as experts and joining them as partners in this research endeavor. I mean, these were people who revolutionized everything about healthcare care in America, from the way doctors and patients interact to the way drugs are researched and regulated and marketed. They did it all in their 20s. I mean, and you can see how young they are and how fresh they are and how, how motivated they are to make those changes. Fundamental change. For example, the structure of the NIH, National Institutes of Health, multiple institutes all operating under a single banner, was so dysfunctional at the onset of the epidemic that it really needed to be rethought top to bottom. Who did that rethinking? These individuals whose training, literally, their educations were in English literature and the theater, and one was a high school dropout, and yet they were able to, because they needed to, conceive of a new structure at the NIH, and they wrote a plan to reorganize it and passed it through Congress, forced this reorganization plan. That's the NIH we have today. The way the FDA approves drugs, the way they design drug trial protocols, innovated by these activists. You know, really profound and lasting change is their legacy.
5: In many ways, AIDS brought us together and generated a sense of activism we hadn't had prior to the early 80s. Wouldn't we have made the gains we've made if the plague hadn't happened?
10: It's important to remember that when AIDS first came that gay people had no role in in civic life whatsoever. In 1981, we didn't have any public figures who were gay. We didn't have gay actors. We didn't have gay journalists. We didn't have, there's nobody. And that we didn't have anybody advocating on our behalf from the larger community either. And in that short span, which is now 30 years, so much has changed kind of culturally. And it's because of AIDS. It's because AIDS made it impossible to not, lay claim to humanity and citizenship. And once those claims were made, everything else became possible. I mean, I think it was Andrew Sullivan who wrote about AIDS as being the ashes on which this now enormously well-established gay rights movement has been built. And I think that's an undeniable
12: truth.
0: We finish the hour with a poem from one of Stephen Rain's students, who took his My Life as Poetry Senior Workshop.
12: My name is Bob Dahlmeyer. I've been living in Los Angeles for 30 years. When I came out here, I got immediately involved with Morris Kite and Don Kilhefner and all of the folks who were involved in the movement at the time. We did lots of things in the streets, in your face. I was involved in the March on Sacramento that we did when Duke Majin cut AIDS funding. I lost so many people to the plague that I wrote this poem in their honor. It's called Tears. A tear for the faceless ones who dreamed this virus up and set it down upon my beloved Robin. A tear for the merchant of gods who construed a disease as religious punishment for my beloved Michelle. A tear for the politicians who gave scant lip service and finally filibustered my beloved Dieter. A tear for the caretakers who cuddle and cradle and clean up after my beloved Ivar. A tear for our cloth graveyard. Its outrageous creativity makes one startling statement for my beloved Tony. A tear for me, nay for you, diminishing daily with occasional reruns of brilliance for my beloved Jim and Dennis and gino and david and hank and alan and jimmy and jim and bill and fred and bob and vic and michael and leonard and rue and rick and ron and howard and jose and joe and mike and rick and mike and philip and carl and jerry and david and jerry and ed and vince and robert and bob And Leo, and Tom, and Bernard, and Giancarlo, and Fernando, and Kyle, and Steve, and Vincent, and Bill, and Tony, and Jean-Pierre, and Randy, and Gary, and Corey, and Sam, and Mark, and Peter, and Keith, and JP, and Steve, and Vito, and Judd, and Rand, and Michael, and Richard, and Bob, and Terry, and Gavin, and Giovanni, and Lee, and Tom, and Rue, and Jack.
0: Steve Shacklin is an American songwriter and musician. He's widely regarded as one of the first HIV-AIDS bloggers, beginning his in 1996 to keep family and friends updated on his failing health. In 1998, he wrote the off-Broadway musical The Last Session to detail his experiences living in the plague years. So we closed with a rumor of a cure he heard from Somebody's Friend. Somebody's Friend took a
3: trip to Chinatown Somebody's friend got secret herbs Somebody's friend got cured of HIV But when I ask if I could meet somebody's friend They say it's not my friend It's a friend of somebody's friend Somebody's friend tried moonstone therapy Somebody's friend tried some new drug That came from Cleveland Drawn from a bug They found in England Somebody's friend got cured of HIV. But then I asked if I could meet somebody's friend
0: This week, IMRU presents Pride Out Loud, Episode 4, Marriage and Beyond.